Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Oh, what a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Yes, yes. I was thinking maybe we should just have Vanessa preach today. Where'd she go? She There she is. I see behind that post there. Uh, little fiery woman. I think Daryl was getting blessed by your sermon. Uh, if I was correct, it looked like he might be, he looked like he was getting a little teary while you were getting a little fiery. Um, what a great, just look at your neighbor and say, you sure do look good. Even if they don't, just speak by faith that God will do a work in them. Yo, I'm sorry, I had to go get a bite. I was like, I need a bite of something right now. So we, I went back to the children's area and got a handful of uh, animal crackers. And then I walked in the door and I was trying to get him in real quick. And Nicole said, where's David? I'm like, I'm going to talk today about, we're, we're, we're in this season talking about a presence people. Uh, I will just tell you probably for the rest of my life, I'm going to talk about the presence of God. So uh, I don't know that our theme will always be presence people, but our theme will always be presence people. Uh, I love the presence of the Lord. I live for the presence of the Lord. And uh, what else is there? Because when you get him, when you get his presence, everything else, it, it, when you seek the kingdom first, the kingdom is, is the presence. And uh, so I'm giving something away. I should stop. I'm going to read you. I think I'm going to copy William McDowell and Lyle Phillips and say, can we stand for the reading of the word? I love it. Yes, let's do it. Everybody stand up now. <laughs> if you have your Bibles or your iPads or your cell phones with your Bible, I'm going to read from Isaiah 64 in the ESV, if you have that. If you don't, you can just follow along in whatever translation you have. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Yeah, yeah. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. That's a pretty hot fire, right? To make your name known. Rend the heavens to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Okay, Lord, 
I just pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church today. Give us eyes to see and let us be transformed by this divine vision and ability to hear. We submit this to you in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. amen. Okay, you may be seated. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Isaiah, when he made this proclamation, he represented the cry of all humanity when he prayed, rend the heavens and come down. It was known somehow that the realities of heaven and earth must be closer to each other. In this prayer, the cry for heaven to influence earth had once again exploded in his heart. This time it was from a prophet. God had already set the stage to answer. And he instructed Isaiah to make this prayerful declaration. It was a prophetic word in the form of a prayer. And heaven's answer came. The revelation and release of God's redemptive plan would now be unstoppable. How? How? Because heaven is a person. Say that. Heaven is a person. We thought it was a location somewhere floating in the clouds. We thought there were, it was about streets and gates and all of that. And it, that's, well, that's part of it. But heaven ultimately is a person. The water baptism of John was known as a baptism of repentance that made Jesus' request to John strange and difficult to process. Jesus had no sin to repent of. But John's baptism was also part of his announcement that the kingdom was near. When John said the kingdom was at hand, he was prophesying about what Jesus would manifest and release. John knew he wasn't worthy to baptize Jesus. In fact, he confessed his need for the baptism that Jesus would bring of the Holy Spirit and fire that's found in Matthew 3.11. Let's read it. I baptize you with water for repentance. John is saying this to Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. John knew he wasn't worthy, but Jesus insisted. Being willing to do what you're not qualified to do is sometimes what qualifies you. I think I'll say that again. <laughs> Being willing to do what you are not qualified to do is sometimes what qualifies you. 
Jesus answered John's objection. Permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That was Matthew 3.15. It reminds me when I was Jesus in the play up in Chicago. It was one of my first scenes when Jesus is being baptized and John's trying to resist. And I, my line was, permitted, had the King James Version, permitted to be so now for thus. It fulfills all righteousness. And with my long Jesus hair. What's funny is they have to try to baptize me in front of a thousand people and, and not get my hair wet. Because the last thing we want is Jesus with wet hair for the rest of the play, right? <laughs> It takes a while for extensions to dry. <laughs> Righteousness was fulfilled in this act because here Jesus became the servant of all. He identified with sinful humanity and was now positioned to announce that the kingdom was at hand. The announcement brought the release, because you've heard me say, quote, Bishop Garlington, nothing happens in the kingdom until first there is a declaration. Thank you, babe. I thought everybody was going to say it. <laughs> I'll give you one more chance. Nothing happens in the kingdom until first there is a There you go. You have to participate, or, or I'll call Vanessa back up here. When Jesus was baptized in water, Heaven took notice. Here's an interesting description of this divine moment. In Mark, the first chapter, verses 10 and 11. Immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus saw the heavens opening. What had been promised through the ages had begun. But no one expected this. Heaven invading earth through the humility of a man. The son of God. The son of man. The word opening here means to cleave or split. It's translated with these words as opening, split, and tears one time each. It's also translated divided and tear two times each. And the word torn four times. Interestingly, it's the same word used to describe both the veil and the temple being torn and the rocks splitting open at Jesus' death as heaven and earth shook as witness to the injustice of that moment. One so perfect dying for those who deserve death. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Yeah. 
In other words, the heavens opening at Jesus' baptism by John was not a simple parting of the clouds. It was a violent act. First represented in Isaiah's language, rend the heavens and come down. An invitation had been made on behalf of all of us, all of humanity, and God answered in a person. Tearing the heavens was in itself an act of ultimate grace, resulting in the spiritual forces of darkness suffering serious consequences. The man, Christ Jesus, is now clothed with heaven, thoroughly equipped for his earthly purpose. And his equipping was a prophetic foretaste of what would soon be made available to all of us. It was a prophetic picture of our purpose, our call. I like what Bill John Bill Johnson said. Uh, I remember the first time I, I heard him say it. We were in Las Vegas at a Holy Spirit conference, and um, feathers started just it's like snow flurries. We'd worship for about an hour and twenty minutes, and I went to sit down on the front of this large auditorium, and I'm sitting on the second seat by their their worship leader, and about five minutes into Bill's sermon. Uh, a little white feather just kind of floats down between me and Corey. And he stopped and he says, is that a feather? And I said, yeah. He said, it's just a sign that makes you wonder. And then for the next hour and a half while he spoke, feathers are just dropping in the air. I'm just like, and he didn't even give it any attention. At one point he stopped because everybody was just kind of looking. He said, I'll give me, let me give you a secret. Go like this. And you can catch it. Because <laughs> people are trying to and it would float away. Uh, where did that go? Signs. He talked. He said signs that make you wonder. There were several signs that occurred that make you wonder. The veil in the temple. The rocks around Jerusalem and the heavens all experience the same act of violence. They give witness that the king with the superior kingdom has just come onto the scene. The veil. God, this is what the veil meant. God was not tied to an old covenant anymore. As the requirements had been met through Jesus' death. And the veil was torn from top to bottom as it was his doing and then the rocks the hardest places on earth were responding to the change in the seasons into the shift in the atmosphere splitting open to signify that Jesus the king of glory was welcome here to rule and the heavens the prince and the power of the air had no authority over Jesus. And Jesus would be the prototype of every believer who would walk the earth after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven.
So then, what happened when the heavens were torn open in this act of violence? What happened? Glad you asked. The Spirit of God came down. This is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. This is in response of the cries of the kings and prophets who all ached for this day to come. Jesus paved the way for his experience to become our experience. I want you to consider that. Jesus paved the way so that his experience could become our experience. The Holy Spirit, the treasure of heaven that Jesus and the Father spoke about has been released on the earth. To look for another open heaven is to incorrectly steward the one that's already been given to us. Every believer has an open heaven. For the believer, most closed heavens actually occur between the years. Yes, ma'am, I will say it. For the believer, most closed heavens are between the years. It's in, it's, it's in our heads. It's in our mind. Living as though the heavens are brass actually plays into the devil's hands as it puts us in a defensive posture. This violates what Jesus accomplished. He put us on offense with his commission, go. Remember, believing a lie empowers the liar. Believing a lie empowers the liar. I'm glad Granny's over there. If Granny is a good responder. I, I mean, there's some good response happening from there. Granny Betty. This certainly doesn't mean that darkness isn't able to cast a shadow over a person or a city or even a nation. We find ourselves sometimes in spiritually dark environments. We've seen a lot of it in the United States and all over the world in the last couple of years. I've been to nations when you get there, you can feel the darkness so much that it almost causes you to tremble because the realm of darkness is so prevalent or dominant. But even so, it's an inferior power. One that I cannot afford to be impressed with. My attention must be on the provisions and the promise of Christ and the open heaven over me. It doesn't matter how dark a circumstance my, I might walk into. I know this truth that 
the heavens are open over me. And I can walk into any situation in any country. I see you back there, Lenny. And you know what it's like to walk into a dark environment. But the truth, the superior truth is the heavens are open over you. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. I believe that keeping my focus on those things describes at least in part what it means to abide in Christ. Nicole and I talked about abiding in Christ a couple of weeks ago. John 15, 4 was our text. Plus, our refusal to fear reminds the devil that he is finished. Sometimes we get surprised. Something happens. We get an email or we get a bill. And we panic. But then we have to seize our thoughts. Take our thoughts into captivity and refuse to be fearful. And every time we do, it reminds the devil that he is finished. <laughs> Philippians 1.28. If for some reason you can't seem to sense what to do in any given environment, worship. I'm going to open up this, this letter. Oh, my God. It's from the American Express. This month is frightening. I worship you, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Just got uh, a message. Janelle messaged me from, what, uh, uh, from uh, uh, a post that she saw on on Facebook, and then other friends started reaching out even this morning about a friend of ours, Lyndall Cooley, who had uh, a situation with his heart and has been into open heart surgery in the last 24 hours. And, and uh, here's a man who's my age, and I'm, and I'm like, God, heal him, heal him, heal him. And then I find myself, God, I just worship you because you're Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals. Martez is helping me. He helped finish that scripture. He said it in King James. He knows. When in doubt, always worship. We cannot let darkness shape our awareness of the heavenly atmosphere that dwells upon us. The size of the open heaven over us is affected in some measure by our maturity and how we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Think of the open heaven like a big oak tree. The bigger and more stable the tree is, the more people can stand under its shade. Mature believers carry heaven's atmosphere in such a way that others are able to stand under their shade and receive protection. That's what the church is. The church is an oak tree that people can gather. That's why it's important to come to church. And then other people can make withdrawals on your breakthrough. And become changed just by being under the covering. 
to live unaware of your open heaven is to contribute to the war over our hearts and minds as it pertains to the truth of scripture. Then we'll always see what hasn't happened instead of living from what has happened. We owe it to God to live aware of what he has done and draw from the reality that he has made available to us. Not doing so cost us. The heavens were torn open. And there is no demonic power that is able to sew them back together. Besides, the Father longs to fellowship with the Holy Spirit that resides inside of you. Do you think there is any demonic power that can block that fellowship? Have you ever considered that the Holy Spirit and the Father commune with one another? The same Holy Spirit that resides in you and in me. While we hear from him through the Holy Spirit, they talk to each other. And there is no demonic force able to close the heavens and block that form of fellowship. When we live with the primary awareness of the enemy and his plans, we instinctively live in reaction to darkness. If I do, then the enemy has had a role in influencing my agenda. And he's not worthy. My life must be lived in response to what the Father is doing. That is the life Jesus modeled for us. Heaven is filled with perfect confidence and peace, while this world is filled with chaos and mistrust. We, hear me now, we always reflect the nature of the world that we're most aware of. It bears repeating. We always reflect the nature of the world that we are most aware of. Living aware of open heavens has incalculable results. Some people get bothered when we pray for the Holy Spirit to come. It's time to minister to someone at the end of service and we say, Holy Spirit, come. How can God come to where he already is, they say. When we get ready to pray for people, we'll invite him. And the question is, why invite God to come when he's already there? It's a good question. I've got an answer. It makes no sense whatsoever to pray that way unless we understand that there are different measures and dimensions of his presence when he is here there is always more to come it's important to hunger for and invite that increase everybody say increase lord isaiah had a perception of this reality 
saying in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the first verse, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. That's F-I-L-L-I-N-G. Filling the temple. The word filling implies that his robe filled the temple, but then continued to fill it. He came, but he kept coming. There is always more. Always more. Say that again while I take a drink. There's always more. There's packs and packs of water out on the dock over here. There's always more. So I want to give you at least a partial list of these measures of his presence. And each one is an increase of the previous one. Number one, God first inhabits everything and holds all things together. You can find it in Colossians 1.17. He holds it all together. He is everywhere. He is the glue that holds his creation in place. Number two, the second dimension, is his indwelling Holy Spirit in the lives of those who have been born again. He specifically comes to make us his tabernacle. Number three, the third dimension is seen when believers gather in his name. As he promised in Matthew 18, 20, he is there in the midst, in the middle. This is where the principle of exponential increase comes into play. God abides with you. But when you come in a room with 190 people, and he's with you, and he's with me, and he's with her, and with him, and all of them. There's this exponential opportunity for the increase of his presence in and on all of us. Number four, the fourth measure or dimension occurs when God's people praise him. For he says in Psalms 22, 3, he inhabits the praises of his people. He is already in our midst, but has chosen to manifest himself upon us more powerfully in that atmosphere. Number five, the the, the fifth measure is seen in in Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. God came so profoundly that priests were incapacitated. It's found in 1 Kings 8 and also 2 Chronicles. No one could even stand, let alone play instruments or sing. They were completely undone by the presence, by that measure of presence. I give you these five levels only as principles in an effort to give you a snapshot of how he longs to increase his manifestation upon his people. The day of Pentecost and the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit may in fact illustrate 
all of these principles combined. As an entire city came under the influence of God's manifest presence. An entire city came under the influence of God's manifest presence. These measures of presence are recorded in history and in scripture. We know of cities that were completely affected in recent years, in the last 30, 40 years. Pensacola, we know about the great revival in Pensacola. The entire city was affected. The city of Toronto, there was a great revival in Argentina, South America, great moves in Africa, all over the world. Reformation and revival history shows us what is available. The responsibility for the measure of God's presence that we carry lies with us. We always have what we earnestly desire. We always have what we earnestly desire. Oh, I know what I desire, and I pray that it becomes infectious, that it becomes more infectious than COVID, that the people of God get such a, a, a desire, such a hunger that we all are able to earnestly cry out, rim the heavens! It's easy to get preoccupied with the vision for our lives that we miss the process entirely. We're here to grow in the maturity of Jesus. Bring as many converts with us as we can and transform every place that we have authority and influence. There's a mouthful. We're here to grow in the maturity of Jesus, bring as many converts to him as possible, and transform every place that we have authority and influence. What we sometimes fail to realize is that all of these assignments from God are impossibilities. Everything... He gives us direction to do is always an impossibility. Every one of them. But strangely, they are possible if they're the fruit of something else. And that is something that we can actually do. We are called into fellowship with him. In this process, he's made it possible for us not only to come to know him, but also have him live inside us and even rest upon us. Everything we could ever want out of life flows from that one privilege. King David understood this concept probably better than most New Testament believers. 
he referred to it as, Tanner shared it, Nicole and I have shared it numerous times and we'll keep on sharing it. I think it's our mantra. Psalms 27, four, one thing, this one thing, all of life gets reduced to one thing, how we steward the presence of God. Stewarding his presence, hosting him is the only way these impossibilities can be realized. It's only when we, when you seek his face, you get his hands. I'll leave that one alone. The fulfillment of these dreams all of the impossibilities that we begin to experience is only a byproduct of hosting him, hosting him. Well, you host him miracles, just break out. You can, I I've seen it where people come in by the hundreds and just get healed and nobody touches them. I know the Bible says that we're, if anyone's sick among you, call the elders, have them lay hands. So there are, there is, uh, scriptural protocol that we go through but i love it when jesus comes in a room when the people of god are so passionate in their worship and he's like i can't hold myself back they are wooing me they are drawing my presence and he just comes sweeping in the room and cancer just is annihilated when the brightness of his coming comes into effect Broken bones come back together. Dry bones come alive. Jesus. Jesus. Affirmed this principle. When he taught, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. That's Matthew 6, 33. The kingdom of God is not something separate, separate from his presence. The kingdom has a king. In reality, the kingdom of God is within the presence of the spirit of God. We see this in Romans 14, verse 17. This command by Jesus is to prioritize our lives down to this one thing, which is eventually evidenced with righteous living. Bill Johnson said, uh, I'm always quoting somebody because everything I have I stole from somebody else. All the good stuff, I either got it from Tommy Tenney or, or Bill Johnson or, or Tanner. <laughs> Bill Johnson said that he once had the Lord wake him up in the night with his voice. I've had experiences like that multiple times. He said that, this is what the Lord told him, that he watches over the watch of those who watch the Lord. 
Riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> Some of y'all never saw that old Batman. You don't know that, that phrase. He said that he watches over the watch of those who watch the Lord. Bill said the moment excited him and puzzled him at the same time. The watch represents God-given responsibilities. It's what a watchman does. He looks over his responsibility to make sure things are safe, safe and taken care of. God was basically telling Bill that he would watch over his responsibilities if he would make watching him his only responsibility. It was an invitation to become presence-centered, to become a presence person. It was an invitation to keep your eyes, to keep your heart after him. Seek first. Seek first. Everybody say, seek first. And all these things will just be taken care of. It's not that we don't try to steward it and that we don't pray. And those times comes and we do. But... What about living with just the byproduct that miracles and signs just follow you because you believe, because you seek him first. You gather here on a Sunday morning and yeah, we have things that we need to tend to, but the first thing we're going to do is pursue him. The first thing we're going to do is seek his presence. Seek ye first his kingdom and all these things will be added. When we talk about our responsibilities, a lot of things come to mind. We gather here on Fridays at noon to pray, but then we also have to vacuum the floors. I, I'm just going to throw this out. People, will y'all please learn that in this church, I don't know if it's because we packed the paper towels in so tight, but I never go in the bathroom that I don't... Uh, see little pieces of paper towel down on the floor. And so this week I finally pulled out a paper towel to, to dry my hands and a piece fell on the floor. And I'm like, that's how it happens. <laughs> but I always pick it up because I know we have visitors that come in and they think these people need to clean up the place. I remember taking Gracie into uh, a restroom at the YMCA for a church service. A church was meeting there, and she was little, and uh, Nicole was busy, so I had to take her in the men's room. And she sees it, and she goes, she was maybe four. She says, ooh, men is nasty. <laughs> <laughs> I never want people to come in this church and say, ooh, dwell church is nasty. Pick up after yourself. Oh. Squirrel. But for me, it boils down to this one thing. And the one thing is his presence. What do I do with his presence? What place does the manifest presence of God with how I think and live? Does the presence of God affect the vision and focus of my life? What 
is the impact of this one thing on my behavior. Thank you, Granny. In Acts, I got to land this plane. In Acts chapter 1, Kareem, that was your cue. But let's not tell the others. We'll just think that you just knew. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus appeared to the 500, telling them not to leave Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. The remaining 11 disciples of Jesus were part of this group. The 11 had already received the Holy Spirit in John 20 when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive. But they were still commanded to stay in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised. They formed a prayer meeting. After 10 days, only 120 remained. I always wonder, how did those 380 feel? Probably nothing. As highly regarded as this day is in all of our lives, in our hearts, I'm not sure we see the significance. On the day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given. This baptism is the... in the Holy Spirit is called the Father's promise. The Father, the one who only gives good gifts, has given us this gift. All life flows only from him. He is the one who is the orchestrator and the conductor of our life. And he has given a promise. And this is it. This is his special gift. It's a promise that reintroduces us to the original purpose for humanity. A people suited to carry the presence. A people designed to carry the fullness of of God on earth. This is only possible through the baptism of fire. The Holy Spirit was more than just speaking in tongues. It was power. If you speak in tongues and don't have power, something is missing in your encounter. And suddenly, Acts 2 and 2, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. A noise came from heaven. Two worlds met. It was like a violent rushing wind. The word rushing here is phero, P-H-E-R-O. Out of the 67 times it's translated in the New Testament, it's only translated rushing once right here. The other times it has the meaning to carry, to bear, or to bring forth. It would be foolish to to remove or lessen that word rushing. 
trying to change the translation, but I would like to suggest to you we could add, bring forth to our understanding. So then, could the word rushing imply that this was a noise, a violent wind that carried or brought forth something from its place of origin to its destiny. The place of origin was heaven, but its destiny was the earth. From heaven to earth, I think so. Noise can be translated to this word roar. Everybody say roar. It just, just saying it causes images to rise up in my mind. The circle of life. <sighs> Remember when Simba tried to roar and it was just a little purr? <laughs> God spoke the worlds into being. His word is a creative roar, a creative force. In Psalms 33 and 6 in Genesis 1, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Whew. This sound could have come from the mouth of God, releasing something on the earth that the prophets longed to see and be a part of from the beginning. Add to this fact that God himself rides on the wind, Psalms 104, verse 3. We then see that this is a moment when God, riding on the wind, a sound, heaven's breath, is restoring humankind to its purpose. Without question, this is the most dramatic invasion of heaven to earth that ever happened. In this moment, it was the defining moment for the church. This is what the Father promised. The airwaves carry heaven's sound. The sound did, in fact, carry a reality from that world into this one. The heavenly sound transformed the atmosphere over the city of Jerusalem. In one moment, it was changed from the city that crucified Jesus to a city that wanted to know what they could do to be saved. In a moment. How did that happen? Through sound. A sound from heaven. Both sound and light are vibrations. And on this day, it was the vibration of heaven that introduced a different drumbeat to the city that were marching to a drumbeat they didn't know. And as a result, for the first time, they could see. After the sound, they could see. The house of God is the gate of heaven. You'd heard me talk about the gate of heaven and sing about the gate of heaven. It's the house built on the edge of two worlds. And right here we see the effect on the surroundings of the church when they become open to what God is doing. 
There was a literal release of something from that world through the gate into this one. And a city was positioned to experience unfathomable change. The heavenly sound was heard and experienced on earth. The roar of heaven summoned this city to its purpose and its call. In this moment, two worlds collided. And the inferior realm of darkness gave way to the superior nature of his kingdom. We have the unique privilege of carrying his presence. In doing so, we, um, we cause this kind of conflict so that these two realities, heaven and earth, can dance in harmony. We think it's one or the other. No, 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 no. Heaven and earth are meant to dance in harmony, in unity. Oh, that gives me a great picture. And it's similar to the picture given at Jesus' baptism in that it was a violent activity from heaven. It upset the powers that were accustomed to occupying that space. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was released in the same way as it was at Jesus' baptism, this time upon a people. It's important to note that violence in the spiritual realm is always a peace-filled moment for his people. That's how the Prince of Peace can crush Satan under our feet in Romans 16. Another way to put it is every peace-filled moment you experience brings terror to the powers of darkness. When you're walking through your situation and panic ensues, your ability to draw on the peace of God brings terror to the dark world. And you don't have to say, I bind you in Jesus' name. I mean, you can't, but I'm just saying, embracing the peace of God only in the kingdom is peace considered a military tool. The result was a city restored. When that sound, that mysterious sound was released at Pentecost, thousands of people began to gather to the 120 in the upper room. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. People were still preparing for the day, but they dropped everything. Men laid down their tools. Women had their children drop the toys. A sound filled the air that also filled their hearts. Imagine an atmospheric shift over an entire city. Imagine an atmospheric shift over our city. I told you early on that he was giving us a prototype of, of his plan for things to come. He's positioned us in a place as presence people to live close to the door, close to the gate, to engage and bring heaven to earth and, and participate in the dance of unity. This is the city 
that rose up to crucify Jesus. His presence among them was the one good thing they had, but they listened to the voice of murder, the spirit of murder, the one thing civilized people take pride in resisting. Yet what erupted out of the heart of God, the sound that was released through the open heaven erupted over an entire city. No one knows why the crowd gathered to the upper room. No posters were handed out. No invitations were sent. No announcements were made. But a sound was released over them that cleared the air for the first time in their lives. Their thoughts were clear. They could reason. They sensed divine purpose. It seemed as though God was summoning people. And that's exactly what happened. Growing up, I always thought that people gathered because they were speaking in tongues. The word says they were speaking the native languages. But that still doesn't make sense. Especially for an international city where foreign vis visitors came. It was, it was common. They gathered to a sound, an indistinguishable sound, one that reached deep into the hearts of people. Apart from an act of God, it would be impossible to cause people to leave their business, their homes, their activities, and gather for no known reason. This sound called to something deep within the heart of the city, calling to restore it to its original purpose. This city was known as the city of his presence. King David made that dedication so many years earlier when he dedicated the tabernacle that he built, when he established worship 24 hours a day. to illustrate the nature of this sound. I've done this before. I like to compare it to that of a, a musical instrument. A gifted musician can get an almost magical sound out of the saxophone as they breathe across the reed properly placed in the mouthpiece. In the mouthpiece of the instrument. In the same way, consider the breath of God blowing on the reeds of the hearts of 120 people, releasing a sound over a city that changed. I dare to say this morning, uh, we, I, Daniel stepped up to me once, Daniel Gardner, and said, you can feel the cry of people rising. We, we're, we're uniting in ways that we... Uh, that, that's only increasing. And as that, as we unify, as we become one in our cry for the heavens to be open, when you change an atmosphere, you change a destiny.
I'm not talking just about this church. I'm talking about the city that we're called to reach. People that don't even know Jesus at this moment, but when the sound is released, there's some kind of unknown force to the natural mind that tugs at the hearts of unbelievers and the increase comes and people start showing up. They don't even know why or how they got there. But there was something that was released that gripped their hearts in a deep place. When you change an atmosphere, you change a destiny. That's what people heard. A harmonic sound that came because 120 were in unity, not with just each other, but also with the spirit of the resurrected Jesus. That's the sound that was heard some 2,000 years ago. It was a sound that initiated the ushering in of 3,000 people in one day. A momentum was created through this open heaven that made it so that people were added to their numbers daily. That's, August, that's Acts 2.47. And that continued until it opened even more. The increase of the opening, Acts 9.31 says, it moved from addition to multiplication. That's how they described it. At first they described they were added to daily. And then a few chapters later they're saying, and the multiplication. When Peter saw the crowds gather, he had an uncontrollable urge to preach. I just want to say to you, people of dwell, people of God, sometimes you just might be at the grocery store and because of what we walk in, because we are carriers of his presence, you may find yourself with this uncontrollable urge to speak to a stranger and the words just come. This man who was a coward only days ago when he was questioned by a servant girl in Mark 14, now stands heroically before thousands of people to proclaim the good news. It wasn't just the fact that he had to give witness to a large crowd. It was before the crowd that was now mocking what they saw once they were drawn to the place. This sermon came in the most unusual manifestation by God's chosen people. The crowd thought they were drunk. Often what we think drives the world away from the gospel actually brings them to it. Let's just get rid of the passion police. Many think that God's reputation is somehow protected when we preserve our dignity. We're just, we, we don't want the reputation of God to be tarnished by acting like a Pentecostal. God is constantly asking us to lay down our rights, our dignity. Courage rose up in Peter's heart and somehow he made sense of it all and brought forth the perfect message. Cowards are only one touch away from becoming courageous preachers. It's 12.30.
12.07. Just got one more thing to say. Then we're going to be over. About 6.30 this morning, Nicole was putting a roast on with the carrots and potatoes and it's a lot better than animal crackers. I, I, I want you to see what's being implied. Is that if it, when it happened in the upper room, God was showing us a pattern that is possible still today. We are still a part of the church age in a, in, a, in a time when so many churches are being lured into this passive pursuit that I don't think is pursuit at all. They, they're taming the experience to protect God's reputation. What must we do to be saved, they said. That's such an incredible response from the people who crucified Jesus only weeks earlier. Was it Peter's sermon? I don't want to take away from his moment of bravery. But this is the reality. Peter preached under an open heaven. This atmosphere carried the sound of heaven that changed the mindsets of an entire city in moments. His message was brief, but it was filled with power. And it brought understanding so that the nervous mockery stopped and the real issues of their hearts could be seen. This becomes the devil's worst nightmare. Suddenly, things progressed from the anointing, the open heaven over one man, Jesus, to 120, and now imparted to 3,000 believers. The potential of this movement is unlimited until the whole earth is filled with the glory of of God, and that is God's intention through those who will host him, those who will carry his presence, all the while yielding to the Holy Spirit. That is the intention of God for the people who will host him. So my invitation is this, who will stand with me? Who will kneel with me? Who will cry with me? Who will pursue with me to be a people of the presence of God? People that just, for, we're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to make his name famous. We, we, we want to see a city turned around. We want to see a revival sweep through Dallas area and this whole region. Not so that we can boast about dwell church, but so that we can boast about the presence of the one who is on the throne of our lives. 
the one who empowers us, the one who resides in us and rests upon us, who brings increase, who gives more and more and more. And just when you think it's as deep as it can get, suddenly you find yourself in a deeper place. And the wind of God blows. And the people of God open their mouth. And some unusual sound comes blowing through the reeds of our hearts. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Church.